This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An explosion in Iraq changed Steve Baskis's life. In 2008, he was in the Army guarding a general. I thought there was merit and uh, meaning in protecting someone or protecting life. That's the kind of guy Steve is. He was in a convoy in Baghdad when a roadside bomb went off. It killed a good friend of mine. He was like a father to me. Uh, My team came to my rescue, pulled me from the vehicle. Really, the important thing is is they saved my life, and and, and I'm here today because of that. After the explosion, Baskis was in and out of consciousness and remembers waking up with patches on his eyes. Laying in the hospital bed and touching my eyes and trying to imagine what happened and, and where I was. He was halfway around the world in Washington, D.C., at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, and he was now blind. For me, I stare into darkness, into a still world, and that can be very suffocating, and I'm just left with thinking, because visually I'm not distracted, so I'm stuck in my mind constantly. What gets him out of his head is movement, and he often finds that movement on Colorado's rivers. And I like to say that moving is living. And so when I get out on water, it's very dynamic, it's very flowing, it's alive underneath you. And to be able to come and kayak through whitewater uh, with a guide and navigate through six features, which I think this whitewater park has, you don't feel as disabled. Steve Baskus and I are sitting on a park bench next to the Uncompagre River in Montrose on the western slope. Baskus first came to town as a visitor to kayak with a veterans group. Now he's moving here which is exactly what folks in town want. In the last six years, Montrose has tried to reshape itself as a destination for vets, a place that will ease their transition to civilian life. This effort is called the Welcome Home Alliance for Veterans. And at the heart of it, not far from the river, is the Warrior Resource Center. We have uh, display cases of different memorabilia, that a lot of our veterans have brought in that is meaningful for them. Executive Director Mike Tricky and I take a look around one of the main gathering spaces. There's a big round table in the middle. I'm seeing hats that were part of military uniforms. There's a scale model of... That is the USS Montrose. The USS Montrose? That's correct. Well, that's a nice name. We like it. We like it. I can see... Uh, I see a lot of uh, flags in those triangle cases. I remember receiving one of those when my grandfather in the Air Force passed away. Yeah, and those are uh, flags representing some of our veterans that uh, have passed away since we've been here. And what is this place? What, is it, what does it do? It heals. It affords veterans opportunity to uh, just be themselves, to engage in conversations with each other, to share their stories. War and stories? War stories, stories of of how they struggled to get back into society, all their successes. But it's an opportunity to do that in such a way that they feel safe, they feel comfortable. They're not judged. Are you a veteran? Yes, I am. I spent four years in Marine Corps, 68 to 72. And uh, you're tearing up. I wonder why. I feel very fortunate uh, to be in this position right now to where I can listen to and relate a lot of the experiences that veterans have. When I see men and women here in the center talking about their experiences and, and seeing the camaraderie that is created, 
you just can't help but to be moved by that. It seems that fundamental to this is the idea of veterans being with other veterans. It's so helpful to have someone who gets it. Exactly. Especially the combat veterans. Um, They have a very unique way of communicating with each other. What do you mean? It's almost surreal sometimes to see grown men get emotional and the similarities of their experiences. And that may be across generations is my understanding. So it might be someone who is in Operation Iraqi Freedom relating Mm -hmm. to a Vietnam veteran. And a Korean veteran relating to a Gulf War veteran. I wondered, haven't VFWs and American legions been doing this work for a long time? Yes, Tricky tells me, but this is a community-wide effort. The Alliance lobbied the VA to get more housing for veterans in Montrose. It became a clearinghouse for services and opened this safe place for veterans to gather. It also got local businesses to offer veterans discounts. Shopkeepers put a little sticker in their window. Thousands of vets live in this county, and if they need anything, chances are they'll find it at the Warrior Resource Center, because people constantly donate things. Good electric wheelchairs, lifts for those chairs, carriers for those chairs, canes, walkers, transfer boards, uh, back braces. This is John Davis. He served in Vietnam and volunteers at the center. Unlike Steve Baskus, the blind veteran we met earlier, Davis has been in Montrose a long time. And he says he noticed a shift when Montrose decided to lay out the welcome mat. A man, his wife, and two little girls came over and they said, uh, thank you for your service. And that was the first time anybody had ever said that to me. And that was a little over three years ago. That's probably happened to me at least two dozen times since or more. I don't know. You can't keep track, you know, but... And you came from a war that... A lot of people were hesitant to say that about to veterans. I mean, veterans came back from Vietnam, and they were treated like like dirt in many cases. That's right. Davis's own story of service is unforgettable. His job in Vietnam was to sweep for landmines with a bulldozer. With a big old blade, reinforced belly pans, a cover. And uh, what we did is we started at daylight in the morning, got in a row, there were 32 and we'd clear 15, 1,600 acres a day and level it. I can't imagine what that job must have been day in and day out. In other words, you were hypervigilant. You were on edge. I'm assuming. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Right. But if I were in that job, every second of every day, I would have been thinking, is this my last second? Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate description? Yes. And it gets to the point where you don't care. You got a job to do. That's what you do. Keep your guys alive. How did that affect you in the, in the decades afterwards, that for a year of your life, you were in that sort of headspace? Boy, how do I answer that? Um, well, I'm emotional right now, you know, and I'm back there today. In your head? Yeah, and uh, when you come in here, you meet a new vet, doesn't matter where he's been, you know, and you say certain words in that discussion then you're connected. It's that terrible vocabulary of war. Yeah, that's a good description. Davis says the highlight of his week is a Thursday morning meeting of vets, which he jokes is a dangerous place to be. Because the Marines run it, 
and the Army's accepted, but you wouldn't believe what happens here on this table on Thursdays. Give me a whiff. I can't. It's X-rated. <laughs> <laughs> I think fundamentally you're talking about camaraderie. Uh, yeah, that's a better word. <laughs> now, maybe you're wondering, why did Montrose do all this, position itself as a mecca for veterans? Part of it was economic, says journalist Donna Bryson. She heard about what was happening here and wrote a book about it called Home of the Brave. She says, go back to the Great Recession, when unemployment in Montrose County was near 13 percent. Montrose was was really hit hard by the Great Recession and didn't bounce back as fast as other parts of, well, as fast as the Front Range. And they'd been talking about these issues. How do we revitalize our town? How do you bring new life into it? And they'd been talking about it a lot (laughs) without really coming to any conclusions. They knew Montrose was pretty far from the interstate. That's a disadvantage for attracting manufacturing. They thought maybe they'd capitalize on Montrose's most famous son, the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, except his family left when he was three. But one day in 2011, a local business owner, a jeweler named Melanie Klein, was watching the news. The fateful Sunday morning. (laughs) I was just having a cup of coffee. My husband was still sleeping. I was sitting on the couch and I was watching CBS Sunday morning. And they had this piece that really caught my attention and moved me like nothing ever has. On the Potomac River, just outside Washington, D.C., two kayakers were in search of the adrenaline rush that comes from surfing a whitewater wave. (laughs) You might not have guessed that 21-year-old Todd Love in the front seat was a triple amputee. Love, a U.S. Marine... The story was about teaching wounded and disabled veterans to paddle. Klein thought Montrose has a river. In fact, we're close to a lot of outdoor activities. We have veterans, maybe we could attract more, and maybe they'd even start businesses. What would happen if a whole community came together on behalf of these injured vets, who there's no shortage of and the war's not over yet? We can't wait for the VA because that's not their job, to integrate warriors back to civilian life. It has to be the community that does that. It has to be a grassroots community effort. And could my community do that? I think it could. So I just sort of went nuts from that minute, stood up, woke up my husband, said, I think I just had the biggest idea of my life. Do you think I'm nuts? And do you think a community could come together? All the nonprofit organizations in the churches and the public and the private and the, and rise above their agendas to include welcoming veterans and providing opportunity for the community to help them become successful citizens. Well, today, the unemployment rate in Montrose is 2.7 percent, and it's landed a new headquarters, a fly fishing tackle manufacturer called Mayfly Outdoors. Now, you can't say that Welcome Home Alliance for Veterans, which Melanie Klein founded, is responsible for that. There are much broader economic factors. But this much is clear. The effort got people here on the same page. It gave Montrose an identity beyond struggling town. And it helped spur city leaders to invest in the riverfront, turning this stretch of the Uncompagre into a water park, one that's accessible to kayakers with disabilities, like Steve Baskus the blind former army security specialist who's now making Montrose his home. It's a playground. Within three hours, you can be down in the desert, in Moab, in red sandstone, 
uh, Slick Rock, or you can be up in the San Juans, 14,000-foot peaks, and everything in between. And I chose here because of my love of the outdoors, but also the people. The people who jump in a kayak with him, who ski with him, hike with him, and make him feel at home. I like to say people quite literally guide me through life. So it's really, it's a great thing. And he hopes other veterans will follow him to Montrose. And Nancy Lawholm co-produced that report. How is it that Bill Gates founded Microsoft or the late Steve Jobs thought up the iPhone? Every week, NPR's Guy Raz profiles innovators in his podcast, How I Built This. I'm not one of those entrepreneurs that that thought he was going to be super successful. You know, I was just trying to survive. There was not a sale to be had. It was terrifying and horrible, horrible. And we almost, I really contemplated that moment. This is a failure. We need to shut this business down. We need to give whatever remains of the money back to investors. Later this week, Roz comes to Colorado to interview Kim Jordan, co-founder of New Belgium, the Fort Collins craft brewery. Roz and Jordan will discuss how she built this at the Boulder Theater. It sold out, but they gave us a sneak peek in our series, The Disruptors, about entrepreneurship in Colorado and what we can learn from these innovators. Welcome to both. Thanks so Thank much. you. Thanks so much, Ryan. A guy, why is it that I'm not Bill Gates or the late Steve Jobs? Why aren't you? I don't know if it's a question of of why you're not Bill Gates or me or or Steve Jobs. I think it's a question of, you know, what these folks sort of dreamed of. You know, millions of people innovate and entrepreneur or intrapreneur in their own ways. I mean, you can offer the same thing that other people do, like Tony Shea, for example, offer shoes at Zappos, and hundreds of stores offer the same shoes. But what he did and what his product is, is customer service. And and that's the key. You know, the key is that I think inside of all of us, there's this kernel of creativity and of ideas, and, and some people act on those ideas. What do you mean when you say intrapreneur versus entrepreneur? Yeah, it's an interesting word. Um, And increasingly, a lot of people are sort of recognizing that, you know, they work within companies but develop entrepreneurial skills or they'll build a team within a bigger bureaucracy. So they're internal entrepreneurs and they're able to do many of the things that entrepreneurs do but within the confines of a bigger organization. Why does Kim Jordan interest you? Oh, wow. For millions of reasons. I mean, Kim is an incredible innovator. She is one of the pioneers of craft brewing. Not too long ago, American beer was was a joke. You know, Europeans would never drink it. I mean, today, you know, the, the beer she produces wins awards in, in the low countries, you know, in, in, in Belgium and in the Netherlands, in Germany. I mean, not just that, but she runs an ethical company and she runs a company with kindness. She is um, Kim is really the sort of epitomizes the kind of entrepreneur that we try and showcase on how I built this. Kim, New Belgium has been around for more than 25 years and brews just under a million barrels a year. Uh, but I've seen stories that say the company started because you fell in love. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, my then husband Jeff Liebish and I had started dating. Jeff is one of those classic um, engineer types. He's really bright and really introverted. And honestly, I think that when we started getting more serious about our relationship, I think he thought, there's someone who can run the front side of the house. (laughs) And, you know, it turns out that our skill sets, I'm a social worker by training, our skill sets were nicely matched to cover most of the totality of beginning a business and running it. Guy, I wonder if that's a pattern you notice. Is there often the idea person and then the really persuasive person as well who can share that idea and sell that idea? Do you often find that in one person? You know, the the reality is there's no single narrative. I mean, in every single case, the journey of entrepreneurs, whether it's a single person or partners, is different. We have entrepreneurs who are very introverted. We have some who really aren't particularly charismatic. Some of them are the sort of classic, you know, fit the classic tropes, the sort of the risk-taking kamikaze. And there are all kinds of entrepreneurs out there. What's amazing about it and what's really been eye-opening for me is is to discover that, that you know, entrepreneurs are not these sort of magical, myth- mythical creatures, <laughs> superheroes. You know, they're they're essentially ordinary people who, in many cases, just couldn't like deal with the corporate world. You know, they just they weren't fit for it. I mean, someone like Steve Madden, who started you know this massive stu- shoe company, yeah. he he would never have have made it in a corporate environment. He would have been fired. He just he couldn't do it. He couldn't follow the rules. Richard Branson, another one, they kind of had no choice. They had to figure it out on their own, and that's. That's what I I find in virtually all these stories. In the early days of the company, Kim Jordan, I understand you used to deliver beer in the family station wagon. Yep. When did you really know, though, that this company is going to make it? We started in the basement of our house. So we knew that if we sold 90 cases a week, which now, you know, strikes me as hilarious, (laughs) that we were going to make it. But then we signed over the mortgages on our home as personal guarantees and moved into our second location. So then you've got this looming feeling of, by then we had kids, this looming feeling of, what if this doesn't work and we lose our home? You know, so it's a thing that you sit with throughout. Yeah, every milestone must bring its own sense of accomplishment and then its own sense of, gosh, I could lose this or this is costing me a lot. Will it be sustainable? Uh, Some of the most successful entrepreneurs really did get their ideas from the simplest things. Uh, From your podcast, Guy, How I Built This, I'd like to hear from Stacey Brown, who turned some family tumult and chicken salad into a multi-million dollar business. So when the divorce happened and I was in this situation and all of a sudden, what do I have to offer the world? What am I an expert on? What have I perfected over these last years as a stay-at-home mom that people would value? Well, I knew that I was a good cook and I happened to be obsessed with chicken salad. Her business is called Chicken Salad Chick. And, and Kim, Stacy started her company in part because of her divorce. You, meanwhile, had to run a company after a divorce. I'm guessing it's not the first time you had to deal with real-life problems intersecting with business. Is there something you learned or, or were taught that enabled you to overcome setbacks? 
I have a saying that whenever I'm kind of feeling shaky about stuff, I remind myself of, which is pros don't panic. And it's so simple, right? But there are those moments where what your natural inclination to do is, is to panic. And, you know, it helps to put things in perspective and to understand that you can only control what you can control. And I also think for me personally, I'm pretty tenacious when someone says you can't do that. My first thought is, oh, yeah, watch this. So, you know, and I think I'm not alone in that. I hear that with other entrepreneurs. I mean, there are a lot of things that we do at New Belgium, including 100% employee ownership, where in the early days people said to me, you know, oh, no, you don't give people equity. You you know, you might save a small pot of equity for top management, Hmm. but, you know, you can get another forklift driver any day, which was someone literally said that to me. And my thought was, well, no, that's what I want to do, so watch this. I've written this down. Pros don't panic. I might put it on my computer screen at my desk. Um, I find it sort of as simple as it is. I find it really helpful in particular moments. Guy, how much does failure play into the story that you want to tell and how I built this? Oh, it's a huge part of it. I mean, I think if there's one message about the show, it's that failure is your friend, that, that you should embrace it and learn from it and then get better. We've had so many examples of entrepreneurs who failed, who were in the midst of failure. And then when they dusted themselves up off and got up and kind of recovered and were able to kind of step back and look at the situation from the metaphorical balcony, they discovered something different. I mean, a great example of this is Airbnb. In 2009, they went to South by Southwest. Only one person took them up on on this uh, opportunity to rent a room and they you know they went back to San Francisco crestfallen that it was a total failure just one person but that one person also wrote a review and that review was negative it said hey you know yeah it was fine staying at the house but it was weird because at the end i had to hand the homeowner a check and that just felt awkward and transactional and again you know the founders were crestfallen but after a few days they thought wait a minute what if we make the transactions frictionless what if we remove the cash transfer from the equation. And that's what led to to their entire system. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story of pivoting based on a failure. But it took that moment uh, a couple of days later to rise from the ashes and to not be sort of beleaguered and say, let's integrate that feedback. I, I suppose that's not a muscle everyone has. I disagree. I think that is a muscle everybody has. I think it's like any other muscle that you... You practice and you train and it's hard work. It's not something that comes easily to anybody, to any entrepreneur. Failure is hard. But the differentiating factor is between the people who make a decision to embrace that failure and those who just decide not to. I do think most entrepreneurs have the ability to dust themselves off and, you know, learn from their mistakes But I think there are a lot of people who say, no, I I just want to go do my job. I don't want to have to think about all of the complexities and the nerve-wracking aspects of being the one in charge. Mm. For me, failure, we've had tons of them, but I, I see them more as death by a thousand cuts than one thing that fells you. 
another component for that of that for me is competition. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, where do these people get off, you know, challenging our space in the marketplace? And certainly in craft brewing right now, the competition is pretty fierce. But I think competition makes us a lot better because nobody says, gee, everything's going really well. Maybe I'll make a bunch of change. The change happens when you have to say somebody's out there eating our lunch and we need to figure out how to be better at this. Guy, Kim, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Guy Raz is the host of the NPR podcast, How I Built This. He profiles entrepreneurs like Kim Jordan, the founder and CEO of New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins. They joined us ahead of their live show at the Boulder Theater Wednesday. And our conversation here is part of The Disruptors, our coverage of entrepreneurialism in Colorado. And now from 1959, here's a TV ad for a new American toy. Barbie's small and so petite, her clothes and figure look so neat. Her dancing outfit rings the bell, at parties she will cast a spell. Purses, hats, and gloves galore, and all the gadgets gals adore. And here's a pitch for a more modern Barbie that just hits stores. We really need more female role models in tech. If girls can't see women doing these jobs, how will we know we can? This time, Barbie is a robotics engineer. But her walk down that career path hasn't been easy. A University of Colorado professor named Casey Fiesler has pushed the doll's maker, Mattel, every step of the way. Hi, Casey. Hi. This isn't the first time Mattel's tried to make Barbie a scientist. A few years ago, they brought out I Can Be a Computer Engineer Barbie with a book that told her backstory. And your complaints about that doll went viral. What was wrong with her? (laughs) Uh, That's right. Uh, You know, the doll itself was fine. Um, It was great to see Barbie in a career like being a computer engineer. The problem was a book that came along with the doll. And the story of that one was not very good. (laughs) When you say not very good, what do you mean? Well, the basic plot was that Barbie was sitting at her kitchen table with a computer and her sister Skipper came over and asked her what she was doing. And Barbie said, oh, I'm making a game. And then Skipper said, can I play your game? And Barbie laughed and said, oh, no, I'm only coming up with the design ideas. I need Stephen and Brian to turn it into a real game. She needed men (laughs) to help her out was the subtext. Not so subtle, I suppose. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So what did you do about that when you read that? Um, Well, first, I thought it was satire, actually, because it wasn't even just that she needed men to help her. She was also completely incompetent at everything. Like she infected her computer with a virus and then Skipper's computer with a virus. And then the boys helped her and everything was fine. You really thought they were joking. (laughs) I thought I thought it was a joke. You wrote your own version after that. Yes. So I I wrote a feminist remix of that book. Um, I took the pages of the book, blanked the text and wrote new text. Give me a quick sense of what your version of the story brought. Well, in my version, Barbie actually was a computer engineer and Stephen and Brian were helping on her game. But one of them was the designer instead. So it's not that there wasn't teamwork involved, but Barbie could be a leader in this respect. Right, exactly. As as they said on the box, she was supposed to be the computer engineer. 
And if she was a game designer, that would have been different. But yeah, <laughs> she ought to have had those skills in right. your mind. Uh, how long did it take you to write your remix? Oh, I don't know. A few a few hours. A few hours. <laughs> you you really tore through this. You had a vision. <laughs> So at Mattel's request, you wrote the book that accompanies this new robotics engineer Barbie. That That's how much um, sort of spotlight you got from for writing your remix of the previous iteration. Right. Um, so I didn't write the whole thing. I consulted on it. Um, they had a, you know, a real writer write the kind of skeleton of it. And uh-huh. then I helped, um, particularly since the new book is not just a story about Barbie, but it's also to teach kids about programming concepts so that they can start thinking about being computer scientists now. And the book you helped write is called Code Camp with Barbie and Friends. Yes. (laughs) What is it about? Um, So the basic idea is that Barbie and some of her friends are starting to learn to program. And then for their project in class, they decide that they want to learn about how programming concepts are happening all around them. And so it teaches kids kind of how to think like a computer programmer without actually having to use a computer. All right. There are some fundamental skills there that don't necessarily require the computer. Right. Even something as simple as understanding that a computer program is kind of like a recipe. So if I tell you to write me a recipe for a peanut butter sandwich and you write, well, put peanut butter on the bread and then stick it together. And I say, well, you didn't tell me to take the bread out of the bag. So you have to understand that computers are kind of stupid and only only do what we tell them to do. Okay, we've focused a lot on the books that accompany these dolls because that's really where you saw a major fault in that uh, previous iteration. Can we talk about what these dolls look like? Uh, And particularly this new one who is a robotics engineer. Right. Um, You know, and and there was also another Barbie in the interim. So after computer engineer Barbie, they made game developer Barbie. Okay. And this was two years ago. And she was also a big (laughs) improvement. Um, One of the things that I pointed out about her when she came out was that, A, she's wearing sensible shoes, which is nice. (laughs) Okay. Was the first Barbie not wearing sensible shoes? Uh, You know, hers weren't as bad as most Barbies. But, you know, Barbie's kind of built for stilettos, right? (laughs) (laughs) And why are comfortable shoes so important in these fields? Well, I mean, you know, for, for a computer engineer could wear stilettos to work if she wanted to. Though I did see a Barbie recently that was a scientist that had, like, open toed shoes with her lab coat. And I was like, really? Really? If, <laughs> if there are potentially, you know, caustic chemicals in the lab or something like that, would you really be wearing open-toed shoes? Exactly. So okay. th- this is a sense of realism. And, and the other thing with realism is that the new Barbies, they all come with little laptops and they have actual computer code on them, as opposed to computer engineer Barbie where her computer had ones and zeros. Okay. <laughs> it was a little rudimentary, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so sensible shoes for someone who might be in a lab or standing up for long periods of time. These are subtle changes. Why are they important, do you think? You know, I I think in particular the the kind of realism is important because we're thinking about how do how do I see myself in this career? Like what do I picture this career to be? Mm. Right. And so you can see um, a Barbie that even looks like you. Like one of the nice things about robotics engineer Barbie is they have four versions of her in different ethnicities. 
Lovely. So that many different girls are represented in this doll. Robotics engineer Barbie. So did you have a Barbie when you were growing up? I had so many Barbies. You did? (laughs) Um, How do you think it influenced you or your view of the world? You know, that's a that's a good question. I, I was a pretty creative kid, so mostly Barbies were a storytelling vehicle for me, like these elaborate soap operas. Mm. So I don't know that it mattered so much to me what the box said the Barbie was. But this was also like 80s, early 90s, where it was exciting if Barbie was like a nurse. <laughs> um, that felt like a leap forward. It, it did. And, then, you know, like I remember there was an astronaut Barbie at some point and that was a big deal. Mm. But no one ever handed me a Barbie and said, oh, this Barbie likes computers. <laughs> that would have been revolutionary for you, do you think? I think it might have been um, because, you know, kids are creative. They can like take any Barbie and say, oh, this Barbie is a computer scientist. But if you hand it to them and say, look, there's a laptop and there's a robot with this one, it gives you like a starting place. Do you see other companies sort of mangling their attempts to encourage girls to get into the STEM fields? Um, You know, I I think that Barbie kind of or Mattel sort of failing forward in this uh, case was really great that they made a mistake and that have taken lots of, uh, you know, resources to make it better. And I like to think that that's influencing other companies as well. Mm. Um, The one kind of misstep that I often see is this idea that, oh, we want to get girls into STEM. And so the solution is to turn STEM into things that girls like. Like I was just in a toy store and saw a set of STEM STEM toys for girls where everything was about making makeup. So like, oh, learn chemistry by making perfume and eyeshadow. Mm. (laughs) And and you think that's a little pigeonhole. I think so, too. It's just like, oh, let's get girls into computers by making them pink. Huh. (laughs) <laughs> why Why not uh, do it through making rocket fuel or something like that? Right. I mean, I, I think that there's lots of things that girls are interested in. And if, if making makeup makes you more interested in chemistry, that's great, too. But it is a stereotype, right? And there are things girls can be interested in the things, same things that boys are interested in. Or actually, I mean, a lot of research shows that girls get interested in computer science because they're interested in, like, social good, like doing mm. good for the world. Not just makeup. Right. <laughs> okay. So there's room to grow for lots of different companies, it sounds like. I think so, too, yeah. Casey, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Someday I'm going to be exactly like you. Till then I know just what I'll do. Barbie, beautiful Barbie. I'll make believe that I am you. We heard from Casey Fiesler. She's an assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder. By the way, the woman who came up with Barbie was born in Denver. That's Ruth Handler, the co-founder of Mattel. She was inspired by her daughter, daughter, Barbara. That is where the name Barbie comes from. Here's Ruth Handler in an interview. The consumer made the Barbie doll an instant success. It thrills me to walk into an uh, airport and see a child carrying her Barbie doll or be in uh, an assemblage of people and have a child playing with her Barbie. Uh, it's a great thrill. Uh, I, I'm humbled by the whole thought that we could have had that much influence, uh, and yet I know that we did. Ruth Handler died in 2002. 
Our next guest has been said to have a commanding voice. I'll let you be the judge. You are hearing baritone Michael Mays performing as Count de Luna in Central City's opera's current production of Il Trovatore. He's on the phone from Central City. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, you grew up in East Texas, I understand, in a trailer park in a town called Cut and Shoot. And uh, in past interviews, you've said that you don't have the pedigree of an opera singer. Uh, but you did grow up singing. Do I have that right? That's correct. And it wasn't really a trailer park. We lived way out in the country, but in a trailer, you know. <laughs> I see. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, no, I didn't, I don't have a, the traditional sort of what you think. I, yeah, I wasn't going up in that trailer thinking when I grew up, you know, at five years old, I was, when I grew up, I wanted to be Pavarotti. You know, I wanted to be Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash or one of those guys. So opera was something I didn't really discover until later on in my life. I really couldn't read music or uh, I didn't know anything about opera until I got to college. Are you on a speakerphone, perchance? No, I'm on a, I'm on my, uh, my, phone, my cell phone. Oh, from your cell phone. Okay, I thought I would just ask in, in case. Um, so you, you thought of yourself maybe as becoming a Johnny Cash type. Uh, what led you in a different direction? Well, you know, when I got to, to, when I got to uh, college, I started studying uh, with my teacher. And, you know, that's when I discovered um, the sounds you could make with opera and the, the cool way you could can, you could not only sing, which I'd always, I always grew, I grew up singing my whole life, singing in church and singing in school, but combining the the art of singing with storytelling, and uh, you know, being from Texas, we are notorious for our uh, storytelling prowess. You know, so it was nice, <laughs> it was a nice combination of those two things. And so there was something about opera that felt, I guess, in a way, familiar to you. Yeah, it did feel familiar, and and what really, I mean, what really. You know, when I when I first discovered opera, it was it was you know large people in costumes moving slowly. You know, I think the first opera I saw was Samson and Delilah at Fort Worth Opera, and I wasn't really sure when I saw that that that's what I wanted to do. But the more I got into the art form and understand where, where opera was heading, uh, and getting inv- getting involved in what I call uh, opera with a conscience, uh, contemporary American Verismo opera, that's when I really began to understand the opera from a different perspective. How so? Well, you know, when, 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 when you grow up like I did, you know, it's, it's, opera's not something you have any familiarity with, right? Yeah. And we, 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 talk, we always talk about an opera about trying to go out and grab new audiences and get new people. The problem is, uh, for me, when I, the first time I walked into an opera house, I was intimidated. Everybody was dressed really nice. Uh, everything was in a foreign language, and it was a little bit sort of distant for me. It was, it was a hard way. It was a hard port of entry for me. But when I started doing stories like we did in, uh, a few years ago at, at Central City, we did Dead Man Walking. Uh, these stories that have a, a root in a, a, a cultural or societal uh, issue, and it's got a very sort of immediate connection with a, an American subject with music that's uh, very American and it's, 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 it's genesis. You know, I found these ways of connecting with a character that, I, that I'd struggled with when I was doing uh, more classic pieces. Mm. But in so doing, I understood, oh, this is the way I have to connect to this material that's 100 years old or 150 or 200 years old, is through my connection to these modern stories like Dead Men Walking or Glory Denied or Everest, these, these stories that are brand new that are out there, you know. 
So you indeed made your Central City Opera debut in 2014 as the lead character in that adaptation of the book Dead Man Walking. It's the true story of a nun who became the spiritual advisor to a death row inmate. And you played that inmate who is convicted of raping and killing a teenage girl. I hear you are in that 2014 production. Such a voice you have. You've now performed this role a number of times, and it really seems to have been an important part of your career, huh? Yeah, it really is sort of the bottleneck through which my career sort of bloomed. You know, it's, uh, Dead Man Walking was a, was a gateway to a lot of different companies for me and a lot of different repertoire. Uh, you know, that's, that's the repertoire I, I really love the most uh, in, in opera. But uh, I, like I, people talk about, you know, we do... We do pieces like Trovatore, we do pieces like Magic Flute, or Don Giovanni, or, or, or Nazi di Figaro. It's important work that we do, right? I mean, we always have to do that, just like we have to have the Louvre. You know, we have to have the National Archives. We have to have museum pieces. And you have to do them well, and you have to always have fidelity to those pieces. But for me, you know, being able to tell a story to an audience in their language in a way that hits them immediately, and it's a story that has an impact and has a connection to their own experience uh, in, in the society that they live in. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's an experience like no other. And, and one that Dead Man Walking really introduced me to because I was able to do that role in so many different communities from Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Eugene, Oregon, to mm. Madrid, Spain, to London, England, to Israel. You know, being able to do this same American story in all these different places and bring this story to all these different communities has been a real uh, a great thing for me. It's been a, a dream come true. Joining us by phone is baritone Michael Mays. He's performing as the Count de Luna in Central City Opera's current production of Il Trovatore, and uh, he joins us from Central City. You have performed with the Atlanta Opera, Pittsburgh Opera, New Orleans, Washington National Opera. Uh, yet in 2015, you and your wife, who is also an opera singer, settled in Lyons, Colorado. Uh, why did you two decide to make Colorado your home base? Well, I always say, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't born in Colorado, but I got here as fast as I could. No. <laughs> <laughs> we love it here. I mean, my parents, I'm actually in Creed right now. My parents have lived in Creed for about 10 years. Oh, you're in Creed. Cool. And I first, yeah, and my, and my first came to Colorado, uh, as a, uh, as a, as a college student, uh, doing the Crested Music, uh, Crested Butte Music Institute and, then, uh, then again, as an apprentice with Central City Opera in, in the year 2000. And then my, when I met my wife, uh, she's a graduate of uh, CU Boulder. And we sort of had this affinity for, for the Rockies and for Colorado, and it always seemed to call, call to us both, and it felt like it was calling us home. And when we were looking for a place that was a little bit out of the, the hectic rigmarole of New York City or any other major urban center in the country, uh, we found some friends that had, had a line on a, a, a great little house on Park Street in, in Lyons, Colorado. And, uh, you know, we don't get to be home very much because we're, we're traveling. We're both, we're both singers. We both travel the world. But uh, Lyons is such a wonderful community. And to be able to just come home and, you know, walk to the restaurants and walk to the 
Oscar Blues and the, the distillery and everything else that's, that's available there in town. It's just been a real great thing. You know, we can't really take vacations, but every time we come home, it's like being on a vacation because mm. Lions has so much to offer. And a lot of artists concentrated in that little town as well. I mean, I, I imagine it's nice to be married to someone who understands the demands of opera uh, because she's navigating them as well. But uh, when I go to your respective websites and look at your performance schedules, you both, as you say, travel a lot, and it's often not to these same places. How challenging is that on a marriage? That's not easy. More often than not, we're, we're in two different places. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for us uh, as, a, as, a, as a married couple in 2018 in the opera business. And, and you know, Kevin Langan and his wife are a married couple as well. They're, he's a, the Zorastro in Magic Flute, but they're from an earlier generation. And he and I were talking earlier about what do they do before, what do we do before FaceTime? You know, uh-huh. before these video conferencing apps allow us to actually see our partner. You know, I, I really, uh, really have a lot of respect for anybody who was married in this business before uh, in the last century because man, I can't, I can't imagine what it was like for them. Uh, it's not an easy path. Uh, you know, there's the there's the obvious understanding that we're, we're both singers. We both understand what it takes to make this career happen. But uh, you never quite get over, you know, spending most of your time alone. You know, people think that opera singers are you know, it's like this great sort of life and it's very extravagant and exciting. And, and that's true, but you actually spend most of your time alone and uh, it's, it's, it can be tough, but you know, we, we both look at our, our careers as, it's not just, you know, just something we do, but it's our, it's our life's calling. So uh, it's, it's a sacrifice you make that well, I think is well worth it. We have about 30 seconds left. I thought I'd take the time to mention that you recently made your European debut in Madrid, Spain, singing once again in Dead Man Walking. Uh, I guess that's a big deal for an opera singer to break into the European scene, briefly. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I've, 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 I've broken over there with, with, with uh, Dead Man Walking and then uh, found, a, found a European agent and they allowed me up a few more gigs over there. So looks like I'm going to be spending a, a lot more time over in Europe uh, Uh, Well, thanks so much for speaking with us. That is Lions-based baritone Michael Mays. He performs in Central City Opera's Il Trovatore through this weekend. Finally today, so much about national parks is what we see, like the elk at Rocky Mountain National Park, the geysers at Yellowstone. But today, in our series Wild Tracks, we meet scientists who want parks to be known for how they sound. We look to scenic areas first when we think about something that's that's beautiful and worth preserving. Ansel Adams did that wonderfully in the early 20th century with his photographs that once they became public, people flocked to the national parks in the West. They said, I have to go there. I have to see this. What I'm trying to do with these recordings is the same, but with a different medium. My name is Jacob Job. I am the manager of the Colorado State University Listening Lab, and I'm also the creator of the Rocky Mountain National Park Birdsong and Soundscape Project. Through the years, I've hiked well over 250 miles in the park, trying to uncover the acoustics events and these birdsongs. 
the bird population is likely going to feel the full impact of climate change and subsequently alter the sounds of the park within our lifetimes, within our children's lifetimes, and definitely within our grandchildren's lifetimes. An example is the green-tailed towhee. They're expected to lose 82% of their summer range by 2080. Um, They may become nearly non-existent in the park. You know, if we do lose these species, we have these recordings almost like acoustic fossils that we can hang on to. And so that's the first reason I'm doing this. The second reason, and I really believe sort of the more important reason, is I really hope to evoke emotion and memory with people so that they care. And once they care about the sounds, they care about where the sounds come from. And conservation at that point just falls into place that much easier. These sounds come from Jacob Job at the CSU Listening Lab, part of our series Wild Tracks about the natural sounds of the Mountain West. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.